0: and Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This class is all about who God is. That Yahweh is our God, that Yahweh is one, are truths that we must take to heart if we want to think biblically about God. Today, we'll continue our march through the Hebrew Bible, stopping to see how God reveals himself through his Ten Commandments, the Golden Calf Incident, and the Shema Creed. Although the Shema teaches that Yahweh is one, some have interpreted the Hebrew word echad, translated one, to mean compound unity. Fortunately, we can easily dispel this misunderstanding by consulting just a standard Hebrew lexicon, Not only will this episode introduce you to the Shema, but you'll also learn about the remarkable Jewish legacy of integrating this creed into daily life. Here now is episode 412, One God, part two, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Last time we looked at Genesis chapter one, And two, and we dipped our toes into Exodus a little bit. Today, we're going to look at Exodus more and Deuteronomy. And look at God's oneness and what he says about himself. Of course, the people of Israel worshipped other gods before the ten plagues. And actually, if you think about the ten plagues, the ten plagues are, if you really study them, they're all Yahweh over against the Egyptian gods. It's like a battle of the gods, and so, like, one of their gods is a frog. You know, why do you think Yahweh multiplied frogs out of control? One, you know, two or three of their gods were protectors of the Nile. God turns the Nile to blood, as if slitting the vein of the God. And, and, and there are these purpose statements you find where Moses will say to Pharaoh, so that you will know that Yahweh is, is great or Yahweh is powerful, I will cause the sun god to not get in his chariot and drag the sun across the sky for three days? I mean, my goodness. Yahweh could do that? Yeah, he can. So like the, the theological lesson of the 10 plagues for Israel and Egypt is that Yahweh is the one God overall. You're going to hear me say that a lot. He is the one God overall. And so they, after they, uh, the 10th plague, they cross through the sea and they get to Mount Sinai. And Moses tells the people, get ready, you're going to meet God. In three days, you're going to meet God. And so you you need to abstain from sexual contact. You need to wash all your clothes. You need to prepare yourselves. You're going to meet God. And then on the third day, uh, there was lightning and thunder and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And then God himself came down in a fire on top of Mount Sinai. Must have been epic to watch. And so the mountain was covered in smoke. It says it was like the smoke of a great kiln that was just burning up to the sky. And the mountain shook and the people trembled. And then out of the midst of that, God spoke Ten Commandments. This is what he said. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God. Now this is what I'm going to do going forward. This is the English Standard Version, the ESV. But I've just substituted Yahweh for the Lord, just to clarify, because this is kind of our focus for this class. is God's identity, so I thought it would be very significant to do that. Other translations do this already, but I like how the ESV is so literal, uh, much more than many other translations. I wish they were more literal in the translation of God's name, to not change it, but just translate it into English letters. But anyhow, so verse two here. I, this is what God says. Out of the midst of the fire to these millions of people, he says to them, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, so let's just go through this slowly. First up, he introduces himself, he talks to the people directly. He says, I'm Yahweh, I'm the one who rescued you out of Egypt. It's like, nice to meet you, right? <laughs> like That's the first thing you do when you meet somebody. You, you say your name and what you are to that person. Oh, I'm so-and-so's friend, or I'm the one who got you this job, or I am the one that you've been talking to on email, or I'm the one that got you this sale, or whatever it is, right? So like his relationship to them is pretty much just like, I'm the one that got you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's, that's the first thing. And then we see in verse 3 there, you shall have no other gods before me. So like other than saying his name, that's the first thing he says to him. It's like, I'm I'm Yahweh, your God, and don't you have any other gods before me? It's really something, it's telling what somebody's first words to you are when you meet them. And in this case, God's first words are, I gotta be supreme, one God over all. Now I know in Egypt there was Ra, there was not, there was Apis and Hathor and Isis and Osiris and all the other gods of these different creatures. And, you know, these, you've seen the statues of these gods. But he says, you are to have no other gods before me. And the commandment number two, which starts in verse four, is no idols. I don't want you making stuff. I don't want you carving images. I don't care if it's of a horse or of a bird or of a fish These are all things that were in Egypt. These are all things that they were accustomed to in worshiping these other gods. He says, I don't want any of it. Don't make any of it. And if anybody else makes it, don't bow down to them. And then he says, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Now, what does that mean? Is God jealous of these other gods? No. No. Yahweh can't be jealous of a frog god. I mean, come on. Psst. Is Yahweh jealous of his people? No, they're just humans. You know, we're, like, the stuff that is, It's not like Yahweh's just like, oh man, I wish I, I could be like this you know, Aaron guy. He's really cool. That's ridiculous. So there is another meaning of the word jealous in English. And it's not jealous of, but it's jealous for. If you're jealous of someone, that means you want what they have. If you're jealous for someone, it means you want to keep them for yourself. And this is a, a, a virtue, a virtuous jealousy, rather than uh, the nasty uh, sense of envy. And so God is saying to them, like, "All right, well, if you're going to be my people, I, I'm exclusive. Like, I don't, I don't want you worshiping other gods too. Like, I, he just." This is the first thing he says to them. He's going to talk about carrying his name and keeping the Sabbath and not killing people and stealing and all that. He'll get to all that. But like first up, don't cheat on me. (laughs) It's like a covenant. It's like marriage, right? Like don't we kind of say something similar in marriage that will be faithful and and so on till death do us part. So it is with, with God. Now, once again, notice the pronouns that God uses of himself. I, me, I, me, and my. Once again, they're all singular pronouns. What's the impression? There's this one amazing God whose name is Yahweh, and He is over all the other gods, all the other people, all of creation. And what was Israel's response? Verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. Well, so would I. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so Moses it's just incredible to think of. You have all these people. They they're all basically ran away since they stood afar off. Well, how did they get there? They probably ran away. Maybe they walked away. I don't know. I don't want to disparage them too much. But they, they got away from the mountain, and they said to Moses, you go. So Moses goes, solo guy. He walks forward. He goes to the mountain that's shaking and burning and all this crazy stuff, and he just, shoop, hikes it. He hikes the mountain, right into the cloud, and he disappears. And an hour passes, and nothing happens. And then a day passes, no Moses. Then a week passes. What happened to Moses? I don't know. He went on the mountain, man. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into a month. The whole month passes, no Moses. Where, where did Moses go? I don't. He went on the mountain. I don't. Gets about forty days. And they're just like, you know what? Moses is gone. We need to like, come to grips with it. Like, it was cool, everything that happened, but like he's gone. We need new leadership. And so we get Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, that's Moses' big brother, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is like the biggest facepalm of the Old Testament. I mean, you just got introduced to the one God who's overall, and you didn't even pick a cool animal. You decided to represent him with a golden baby cow. Not even a bull. Just a baby cow, a calf, not even a full-grown cow. A cow that could give milk and maybe bite you if it got angry, but just a little, a little baby cow, a calf. Unbelievable. I'm sure in their thought world it made sense. I'm sure in their thinking the, the calf was somehow amazing and like a fitting representative of the god who just defeated all the gods of Egypt. I guess. I don't know. But that's what they did. Meanwhile, back on the mountain, Moses is actually still alive. He's receiving the Torah, God's instruction for how he wants Israel to live. And God says to him, Your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now leave me alone so I can destroy them. That's so funny. So God kind of put, blames Moses for bringing this people. And God is so offended. He's so upset. Like this is the one thing he said to them up front. No other gods before me, no carved images. So what do they do? They carved an image and said, these are your gods who brought you up. Ugh. So in Exodus 32, Yahweh said, this is verse nine to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. That means stubborn. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God wants to go nuclear. But Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and he he prays. I'm not going to quote the whole prayer here, but skip to verse 14. After Moses prays, and Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken. All right? So that's all up on the mountain. The people are still clueless. They're dancing around. They're playing. They're worshiping this golden calf. Moses is on his way down the mountain. You know how it is when you climb down a mountain, right? You go fast, right? You're moving because you, you're going down. And he's going down and he's got, the, he's got two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And he's, he's marching down that mountain. And I bet he's moving. I bet he's cruising down that mountain. And he's furious. It says that he was, his anger burned hot. And he gets to the bottom and he sees the calf and he just throws those tablets that were written with the very finger of God and they break and he goes up to that golden calf and he burns it and then he beats it down to powder, throws it in their drinking water and he says, you drink it, you drink it. He forces them to drink their God. And then... They went to the promised land. So, like, everything was like more or less okay. Moses says, I'm gonna go up and see if I can atone for you. And he goes back up and he, you know, he works with God. And God, God agrees eventually. All right, all right, all right okay. Let let's go to the promised land. Let's go to the promised land. So they march all the way to the promised land. They get to the promised land, and God says, Go! And they say, No! We're not going into the promised land. We send in spies. It's scary in there. We don't want to go in. God said, fine. They said, we're worried about our kids. If we go in there and we get killed, our kids will become slaves. God says, fine. Don't go in. Forty years, you wander around until you all die. And then your kids, you thought you would be slaves. I'll bring them into the promised land. <laughs> and then we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written in the last month of the 40th year. All the older ones had died off, and now those kids are now grown-ups. And he's reminding them, and he's saying to them, let me tell you what it was like when your parents and me, we met God. When he came down on the mountain. And he goes through the whole thing in meticulous detail. And he says in Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart. And this is now 40 years later, that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth there is no other. So this is pretty clear, right? Yahweh is God, there is no other besides him. Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. But we still have have a problem. We still have a problem. Let's say Moses convinces generation two. So generation one is lost. They died, they're gone. I don't want to say they're all lost, but overall it didn't turn out well. Okay, Generation two... They saw the mistakes of their parents. They're like, we're not doing the wilderness thing anymore. We grew up in the wil- We're going to the promised land. <laughs> like, they're ready to go. But then there's still the question. All right, generation two, that's great. Let's say you're faithful. Let's say you don't build a golden calf. Let's say you don't, like, face plant the moment you enter the land. What about generation three? What about number four? What about number five? What about 17? What about generation 257? How are we going to deal with all these other generations if there's this tendency within humanity to craft these idols and worship them instead of the true God? How do we deal with that? That's the Shema. The Shema is the answer to that question. How do you you guarantee the next generation knows who the one true God is? The Shema. I'll explain in just a moment here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is the Shema. The word Shema just means listen up or hear. And we read Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise." You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's so much here. <laughs> There's so much here we just read. Let's slow it down and take it piece by piece. The first piece is Shema Israel: Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. That's the first piece. It's clear, right? Yahweh is the name. He identifies our God as Yahweh, and Yahweh is one. Now, when Jewish people, even to this day, write this, they write one letter of the first word big and one letter of the last word big. Okay, so ayin and a dalit, Basically the ah of Shema and the duh of echad. The word one. The ayin and the dalit, that's not a typo. That's very deliberate. When it comes to Hebrew scrolls, everything's deliberate. Every little smudge means something. These two letters, it's like an A and a D sound, are pronounced aid. And it is a word that means a witness or a testimony. So in Jewish tradition, these are larger to remind the people that this Scripture, this Deuteronomy 6, four, hear Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, is a witness to God's oneness. It's a testimony. Don't mess with it. It's a testimony, it's a witness. No adjusting this. This is literally in stone. Do not mess with it. And then we get to the next verse, verse 5, which the, uh, the Jewish people call the ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta ad Yahweh Elohecha, bechol levavcha uvchol nefshacha. Ufchol me'odecha, which translates, and you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus added one more onto that, but we're not talking about Jesus just yet. Okay, so we're just going to stick with the original, heart, soul, and might. And this reminds me of the story of Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, he's a Jewish rabbi, centuries and centuries ago. One day he was in a cave and he saw water dripping. And when he looked down where the water was dripping, it had carved out a hole in the rock that it was dripping onto. And a rock is so hard to think that water could carve stone. It's unbelievable, right? And he thought to himself, well, man, if if water could drip and fall on this rock and make, make an impression and change the rock, then my old stubborn heart can learn the Torah. And he started studying the Torah and became a rabbi. I don't know if the story is true or not. It doesn't matter. But the point is, you know, that that's, that's his mindset. And so he became an avid student of Scripture. And uh, this was during the years of the Roman Empire after the teaching of the Torah was outlawed in, in the land uh, around Jerusalem. And they captured him. And they started torturing him. And it was a brutal, brutal, disgusting torture They were flaying his skin with these iron combs and it was, you know, they were, they were just slowly killing him, these barbarous Roman people. So Akiva's there and, he, and he's being tortured. And he knows he's going to die and he's just like muttering to himself and they're just like, what's he doing? And then all of a sudden he starts laughing. Akiva like, has this aha moment. He's like, aha! And the, uh, the commander, a guy named Turnus Rufus says, have you no feeling of pain? Are you a sorcerer? You know, like New York translation. What's the matter of you? Why are you laughing? What are you nuts? This is what Rabbi Akiva says. I am no sorcerer, but I rejoice at the opportunity now given to me to love my God with all my life. That's soul is the word life. Seeing that I have hitherto been able to love him only with all my means and with all my might. And with the word one, he expired. Do you see what he did there? Let me show you. The first is Yahweh is one. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. The second is love him with all your heart, with all your life, with all your might or your strength, right? And so he's like, I did it with all my heart. I did it with all my might, but I never could figure out how do I love Yahweh with all my life? And he's, and he, and he's getting tortured. He's, he's in the process of dying. And he's like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. I'm loving him with all my life. Like he's literally giving his life in faithful obedience to Yahweh. And that's why he has this aha moment. He's like, wow. And then he just starts repeating it over and over. Shema Israel, Yahweh, or he would say Adonai because they say Lord instead of Yahweh. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheno, Adonai Echad. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Just mumbling. And then I guess the last word, Echad, which is the word one chad, And he dies. Whoa. So this sets a precedent for Jewish people. And this is, uh, I think, around 100 years after Christ when this, when this happened. But Jewish people from that day to this day, if they're dying, it could even be in a hospital, but if they're dying, especially in persecution, they say the Shema over and over because they want to die with it on their lips. What a legacy. So anywhere from the persecution of the Romans to the Spanish Inquisition to the Jewish murmur of voices in the Nazi gas chambers, this is what they're doing. They're saying the Shema over and over again because they want to die like Akiva. They want to die with the words on their lips. About 10, 15 years ago, there was a a bombing at a Sparrow pizza shop in Jerusalem, killed 15 people. It was a vest bomb by a terrorist. Five members of those who were killed were from a Dutch family, and one was a four-year-old boy. Avraham was his name. We call Abraham. He was lying on the ground, burned, bleeding, dying, and his father was with him, and his father was okay, and he said to his father, Abba, save me. And his father reached down and held his hand and they said the Shema. And then he died. Because that's what you do. So this is not a cold belief for the Jewish people, whether we're talking about in Moses' day or we're talking about in our day. This is a warm, this is at the core, this is the heart this is the part like you can't take away. You could torture them. You're not going to mess with the Shema. It's, it's, it's too deep. It says in verse 6, and these words that I command you, we have just worked on 4 and 5, but in verse 6 it says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Look at these verbs. If You sit when you walk when you lie down, and when you rise. That just about covers it. What else are you going to do? (laughs) Right? I mean, you get up, you sit down, you walk, you're you're on the way. Whatever you're doing, you're supposed to be talking about these words to your children. You're supposed to be constantly saying these words to your children. This is the solution to the generational problem, is that you instill in one generation, this generation two, instill in generation two this in, in, in intense desire to repeatedly say these words, these commandments. There's a place in the Talmud that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. They say one of the reasons why Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans was because people didn't recite the morning and the evening Shema faithfully. That's something they do to this day. Jewish people, every morning, they say the Shema. Every night, they say the Shema. Like these, they are under the law, right? I mean, I understand like we have a different view of the covenants and we believe in Jesus and all this other stuff. They don't have any of that. So they're, this is what they do. And they don't make, take it as an allegory or a metaphor. It says to do this when you sit down. So when they sit down, they do it. The faithful ones, at least or when you rise and when you lie down especially. Um, there's a story about a rabbi named Eliezer Silver. This is from Rabbi Shraga Simmons in the Dan Family Ash World Center website. In 1945, Rabbi Eliezer Silver was sent to Europe to help reclaim Jewish children who had been hidden during the Holocaust with non-Jewish families. How was he able to discover the Jewish children? He would go to gatherings of children and loudly proclaim, Shema, Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then he would look at the faces of the children for those with tears in their eyes. Those children whose distant memory of being Jewish was their mothers putting them to bed each night and saying the Shema with them. That's how he could figure out who the Jewish children were. What a legacy! I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, how many centuries later is 1945 from the time of Moses in Deuteronomy, and yet they're still doing it? I don't know. I'm I'm very impressed. So the Shema is not a silent, cold belief. It's a hot belief. You hold it in your heart. It's on your lips. You say it when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. And then in verse 8 it says, You shall bind them, these words, As a sign on your hand, or your arm, your hand, very similar words in Hebrew, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Well, this is referring to the tefillin, which are these two black leather boxes containing scrolls or parchment. The ayin and the dalit are big still as a witness against the first line (laughs) that you don't mess with it. And these are worn daily during weekday morning prayers. One box is worn on the forehead, and the other is on the left arm. Then it said to to write it on the gate. Look at this, verse 9. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's the mezuzah. The mezuzah is, on every Jewish home, it's a decorative case with a parchment with these same verses written, handwritten, unless you're cheap, in which case you get a printed version, uh, with Hebrew letters on the doorpost. And what you do is you touch the mezuzah. When you enter the house, you touch it, and then you kiss your hand. That's their custom. Pretty cool, huh? All right, so let's review. First up, Yahweh revealed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai and audibly spoke the Ten Commandments what that must have been like. His first words were that he is Yahweh their God and that they should have no other gods before him. The first generation failed miserably to worship only Yahweh without idolatry, as the golden calf incident showed. To the second generation, Moses gave the Shema with instructions to teach it to their children diligently. To this day, Jewish people in Israel and throughout the world are devoted to the truth of the Shema. And I don't want to say all Jewish people are equally devoted. Of course, you know, some people are more devoted than others. But the ones that are taking their faith seriously, part of their faith, in fact, the center of their faith, the very core itself, is, listen, Israel, Yahweh our God or the Lord our God. They don't want to say the name Yahweh because out of respect. So they say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So that's a little bit about Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. Next time, we're going to look at the prophets and see how Israel did in their subsequent history as we continue in our class about our one God who's over all. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 412, part two of our One God class, and leave your comment or question there. Speaking of which, we've gotten a number of comments and some discussion in on our last episode, so check that out if you're curious about it. Some good dialogue happening there. Among which, Bill Schlegel wrote in, saying, enjoyed the podcast much. Great, clear explanations If I may add to the great points you've already made about the grammatical plural Elohim not being evidence for the Trinity, he says, in Hebrew, the same grammatical plural with a singular meaning, the plural of majesty, occurs with the word Lord, Adon, not God's personal name, Yahweh. The grammatical plural is used with a singular meaning for other words too. There are many examples when the plural of Adon, Sir or Lord, is used to refer to one person. Uh, And he cites a number of scriptural examples. He goes on, a person won't see this in English. The word will just be translated Lord, singular. But in each case, the word Lord in these verses is a grammatical plural. It seems to me people who don't really know Hebrew make this Elohim means plurality of persons claim. But one reason the scholars like you quoted have moved away from such claims is because to make the word plural would not mean a plurality of persons, but a plurality of gods. Clearly, polytheism. Blessings. Well, thanks, Bill, for writing in. As usual, you made some great points, and I really appreciate the grammatical point. Mark writes in saying Hi, Sean. Greetings from the Netherlands a new series. This has got me excited. Some interesting points made in this episode. Here's another take on the creation account, which generally seems to align with your interpretation. It's from Rashi, whose commentary I always find insightful to consider, and I think you will agree in this instance at least. And then he quotes Rashi, the rabbi. Although the angels did not assist him in his creation and there is an opportunity for the heretics to rebel, to misconstrue the plural as the basis of their heresies, scripture did not hesitate to teach proper conduct and the trait of humility that a great person should consult with and receive permission from a smaller one. Had it been written, I shall make man, we would not have learned that he was speaking with his tribunal but to himself. And the refutation to the heretics is written alongside it in the following verse. And God created, it does not say, and they were created. Thanks for running in, Mark. I appreciate it. Uh, Some interesting points there. Always curious what the rabbis have to say about things. My take, as I mentioned in the episode, follows uh, Michael Heiser, but also many other scholars. Uh, Check the Net Bible. It's very good on Genesis 126. Even the NIV study Bible gets Genesis 126 right, which is kind of shocking. So I think there is something of a consensus these days on the us text, that God is using us not in a mysterious or mystical manner, but using it in the normal way that anyone uses the word us to include himself and whoever else he's talking to. And who else was there but his divine counsel, the angels and, you know, whatever other classifications of spiritual beings you want to throw into the mix, the sons of God, the seraphim, the cherubim, whatever. But then when it comes to creation itself of humans, he acts alone. So that seems to be the case that wins the day. Sorry, I couldn't read out everyone who wrote in. Uh, Appreciate the dialogue on there. Go check that out. That's episode 411 Yahweh, the Supreme Creator. Well, that's all I have time for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so at restitudio.org. Looking forward to our upcoming UCA conference and meeting some of you there. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.